0: There are ways that if you don't protect yourself with respect to your ideas and your expression and different aspects of what you do and are developing as a professional, your hard-earned ideas and work could sort of disappear through your fingers. That's patent attorney Lloyd Dagan. Intellectual property
1: is kind of this confusing thing. You know, a lot of people think of it as everything you've created, everything you think about, something you've made. And as designers, it's our fundamental responsibility to create innovative solutions to problems and, of course, opportunities. That output is often powerful, provocative, and in some cases, hopefully, valuable. This particular talk covers a little bit of everything, a lot of industrial design, but everything from fashion to images to even sculpture. But most importantly, with a big disclaimer, the purpose of this talk is to provide news and information on legal issues. All content provided is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The presentation of this information does not establish an attorney-client relationship with the listener. The listener should not act on the information presented or anything that we've written down without first consulting legal counsel. If you desire legal advice for a particular situation, you should separately consult an attorney. So there you go, big information. This talk is great lots of information to think about before you go out and get an attorney, and more importantly, some things to think about as you are a creator. So, here we go.
0: So, basically, what is intellectual property? All the different forms of intellectual property are about a right to exclude. It's not a right to make something, it's not a right to use something, it's a right to exclude others from making or using or expressing your expression, your idea, your design. Because many times when you make a product you're also infringing a lot of other people's IP. You're not the first person to invent a variation of let's say a smartphone. But maybe you've improved on it. So you can exclude others or at least enter in some relationship so that you get to use their IP, they get to use your, maybe you collaborate, you know there's some variations. But all forms of intellectual property are rights to exclude. When you have a patent, you just can't go out there and make your product because you could infringe somebody else's. So example, copyrights are a right to exclude others from copying your specific expression. We'll get into the details of copyright, but that's one of the rights. Design patents, it's a right to exclude others from using your ornamental features on their articles of manufacture. That tends to create sort of a confusion as to whether or not They're buying from you, or they're buying somebody's cloned version of your product that might be designed very well. Utility patents are a right to exclude others from using your functionality. Copyrights is not about functionality, it's about an author's expression, like a painting as an expression of an idea of a lake, or a design patent is the ornamental features, like some decorative lines or flourishes on a printer utility patents are more of how does the printer work utility patent might be sort of the formulation of the inks on the paint or how it's displayed on a video screen or a canvas trademarks and service marks I kinda added those in that's a basically a statement of where did this come from it helps people know that if they purchase something from your brand you know be it a you know an Apple or be it some other brand, a Samsung or something like that, that it's coming from you and it's not coming from somebody who's basically trying to pretend they're you. So that's what trademarks and service marks. Service marks go into professional services, architectural services, trademarks go into products. So that's kind of how it distinguishes. The first one, copyright. I'm going to kind of approach this for all the different forms in terms of what's the subject matter that's protected or protectable, what is the grant, like when do you obtain this protection, how long does the protection last, how could somebody infringe upon your protection, your right to exclude, and what are some defenses. And I'm gonna follow that same format with also design patents and utility patents and trademarks, service marks. So beginning, copyright. Again, it's the author's expression of an idea. So you have the idea of a calm lake, and the expression of it is the painting of the lake. Or you have the idea of a boy and his dog roaming through the countryside. The expression is a story or a movie about that. It's not the idea. The grant, basically, as soon as you write, put pen to paper, as soon as you put paintbrush to canvas, as soon as you put your sculptures implements to clay, you basically are fixing it in a tangible medium, and that's when the protection begins. You don't have to register it in front of an office, although if you did, it would give you additional rights, but copyright happens as soon as you've created your work, and that's one of the benefits of copyright. It's immediate. The other forms of intellectual property, you have to go through some sort of a registration process or an application process, but copyright's immediate. The term, it's quite long. It's life of the author, the individual author, plus 70 years. So it's quite a long time. Or if it's a company, it's essentially for you know 120 years from the time it was created. That's a very long time. Trademarks longer if you do it the right way, but that's pretty good. You'll find that design patents and utility patents are respectively for only 15 years and 20 years, a lot shorter. So. But on the other hand, when you get this longer period of protection, you're getting less protection. We'll get into that. Infringement. How do you infringe somebody's copyright? Basically, it's you copy it. It's a form of like plagiarism. You might say, how did some, you say the copy, the other person says you didn't copy. You know, you have this he said, she said. The way you prove infringement is basically if you had access to the material, and there's substantial similarity. So they look to see, did you see the person's painting? Did you see the person's design? And does yours look an awful lot similar to theirs? Then there's probably copying, okay? However, a defense to copyright infringement is that if you created it independently, if you never saw this other person's design or read their book or saw their painting, and you independently created a painting that looked an awful lot like theirs, no problem. There's a series of factual sort of analysis you'd have to go through, but if a person holding a copyright in an earlier work would have to basically show that the alleged defendant had access and then go through, maybe in front of a jury, that there's substantial similarities. So it's kind of the person who holds the rights has the burden to exclude others from using them. So that would be the person who owns the copyright. But a key point is, if you have a copyright it's to your own expression. If somebody else comes up with their expression of that same idea of a quiet lake or a boy and his dog, and it just happens to be very similar to your own, your copyright doesn't cover them. And that's a huge loophole. And that's why copyrights are easy to get, you fix it in a tangible medium, but they can be sort of easy to get around as long as you're not copying somebody's work. And a way that that becomes particularly important, and that's listed as independent authorship, is many times software. It's protectable under copyright. But the way companies get around that is they create something called a clean room where basically they they look at your software, They sort of write a specification where they determine what it does. They give that specification to people that go on and design the software to meet that specification, but because they never saw your software, even if they have software that does the exact same thing as your software, they don't infringe the copyright. So that's a way, it's called putting it through a clean room process. So again, copyright is easy to get, But on the other hand depending on how it's approached, if you keep and don't copy it, it can be easy to get around and it depends on how you're using things. The other thing in terms of a defense is fair use. There is this sense of, you know, are you taking the person's work and not just copying it but you're transforming it in some way? Is the use transformative or merely derivative? Are you taking the person's painting and putting it on a cup? That's derivative. Are you taking a person's painting and let's say applying and stretching it in some way or or false coloring it, where basically you're trying to make a different expression of your own that happened to sort of start with the other person's work. That might be considered enough of a difference that you're basically it's a different expression. So that's considered fair use. So some examples, and I'm not going to go through these all because of the time, but of things that can have a copyright on them. So a sculpture is one of the things that is protectable by copyright. Coke basically has a copyright or had a copyright on its Coke bottle. The shape of this sort of somewhat bulbous in the middle and then narrow at the the top and bottom and then again at the bottom. Shape. boat hull designs can be copywritten. Software, as we talked about, computer fonts, Light shows, where essentially the fixation of a light show might be in the memory chip that stores how the different lights should go on and when and where. So it can be fixed in the memory, that's where it can be fixed. Things that cannot be copywritten are essentially things that are ephemeral. So if you had a performance of a band or a rock band, nobody recorded it. It happened and it's gone. There's actually not a copyright. If somebody recorded it, and that's why they do record it, then that recording is protected by a copyright. Okay. Which is not to say that there aren't rights if you end up bootleg recording somebody's performance. If somebody goes in there and they surreptitiously records your performance, the performers still get the copyright, it's just you happen to have made it. You can't go off and say, hey, this is my thing because I recorded it. No, it's still the performers. It's just the copyright doesn't exist until it's fixed in a tangible medium. So there's other things that cannot be copywritten, words, short phrases, slogans, things like that, but you can get a trademark on those as we'll talk about. Other things that you can't get a copyright on, the things like facts. You know, you just have raw data, that's reality. It's not an expression, it's just the way things are. So if it's the alphabet, it's, basically you're not going to get a copyright on it. On the other hand if you write the alphabet in a really crazy way there's some expression there. You could probably get a copyright on that. Design patents. Now, the subject matter is called you protect the ornamental features on an article of manufacture. So an article of manufacture is something like a phone. It's a pillow. It's a chair. The ornamental features might be the height of the back of the chair the types of metals or surface textures on the chair, it might be the curvature of the smartphone, those things that don't relate to the functionality but are kind of ornamental. Many of the same things that you could have a copyright on can also have a design patent on, except the difference, a key difference between copyright and design patent is if you get a design patent on a certain ornamental features, it's a complete block to others Copying it so if you had a copyright and somebody independently created something that looked very similar to yours Tough you're out of luck, but if you had a design patent and somebody who never saw your design came up with a design that looked Substantially similar to your design the design patent prevents them from using it and because it's a more stronger right it's for a shorter term, 15 years. It's not your life plus 70, it's not 120 years, it's 15. Because you're essentially getting a monopoly on applying certain ornamental features to an article of manufacture. Basically, you get a grant if you file an application before the US Patent and Trademark Office. Design patents are handled in ways that are very similar to utility patents where they have to be new, and unobvious. However, as in the US, the first steps of getting a design patent it's more like a registration system. You submit a design patent for your chair, for your car, for your sculpture, or whatever, essentially the patent office is not yet, they might in the future, comparing it to other designs that are out there. At least not at the beginning. During litigation later on, they will. So just because initially you get a design patent on something and you can get a design patent, it doesn't mean it's going to be valid. And that's something else I want to mention, is some of these things we're talking about you can get protection, but on the other hand, if it's not new and it's not unobvious in view of what other people have done, you might lose it, especially when during litigation somebody looks at it under a microscope. So that's an important distinction. The design patents really should be examined for newness and unobviousness at the beginning, but it's just the way it is in the US that they don't. Up until recently, there's an American Invents Act that was signed in like September 16th of 2012, and certain things have taken provisions. We didn't used to quite look to foreign countries for prior art as much. But now, as of March 16, 2013, for 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 new IPs like utility patents and such, any art within the world is kind of available to be used against the patent. You know, trying trying to get it. So, in other words, if somebody's done something in the world and you're trying to basically do that in the U.S., the U.S. examiners can look to the foreign countries and say, "No, it's been done before. You know, that image has existed before." and then you can't get protection. That's been somewhat recent. There have been other ruling, I mean, prior to like, you know, September of 2012 or so, it used to be that foreign art was much harder to use against the U.S., you know, trying to obtain U.S. protection, but that's sort of changed, so now it can be. Design patents are a little bit different. In a utility patent, basically you have 20 years of protection from the date you file it. And you're right, the examination process takes up some of that time. It used to be you had 17 years from issuance, which is when it issues, and they kind of thought that most of this examination would be done within the first three years, so they kind of figured it would even out. But in most cases it does, but if it doesn't, there's something called patent term extension, where basically if there's undue delay at the patent office, they'll allow you to extend the term by the delay. Design patents are a little different they actually still start upon issuance. So if you file a design patent, you get that as the priority date against all prior art. But when it issues, you have 15 years from that issue date. So if there is some delay, it's not used against you. You still have that enforcement term. So one thing about infringement is a design infringed. There is something called, they apply an ordinary observer test, which is what it sounds like. It's essentially, does the jury think that this other device looks substantially similar to your device? If they do, that other device infringes your design patent. And that can go all over the map. So you have one jury deciding that the Samsung phone basically looks substantially similar to the Apple patent, design patent. Well, Apple wins. You could have another jury determine that the Samsung phone doesn't look substantially similar to the iPhone patent or the iPhone design patent, in which case they lose. And I actually understand that happened during the Apple-Samsung litigation, that depending on where you filed the case, you got a different result as to the infringement of the design patent. I do believe that some of these can go through the appeals process. Again, I follow utility patents more than designs but essentially they're very similar so as you went further up the chain through the appeals court you think there would be some sort of equalization there and on the other hand some of the appeals courts tend to be deferential to the fact finders so the appeals courts tend to review the law that it was applied correctly not that the facts were interpreted in a way in a uniform way so that's kind of a tricky thing but this this is a unique test we'll get to utility patents but basically There's a different person of ordinary skill standard. And that tends to be a little bit more objective as opposed to the ordinary observer. And the reason they do the design patents that is because as people, it's people buying these products in a store. So it's, it's kind of being deferential to the sense that if you put up a product that sort of looks very similar in design to someone else's, well, you're making, you're not giving much protection to the design patent if you let people do that and the people making those buying decisions are ordinary people. So it's trying to be deferential to that. Defenses are basically that the design patent is not new or it's obvious in view of the prior art and that tends to come out during litigation. Some examples of design patents, you know, graphical user interfaces. So all those icons you see on your Apple screen or your you know Microsoft screen or your Windows screen those can be covered by design patents. The Article of Manufacture is the display screen. Yeah, you wouldn't think that, might. A personal favorite of mine is you'll see the water fountain spray patterns. So you have Las Vegas and you create words or whatever in water. Well, the Article of Manufacture turns out to be the water. I thought that was kind of neat. There's other types of things. Patterns can be, have a design patent. So, We'll get into fashion, which I'm not sure if any of you are involved in fashion. Fashion is a particularly controversial area with respect to more design patents, but I mean for for copyright issues, but for a design patent, you can't protect the functional item and clothing is considered functional or a handbag is considered functional. But the way they try to get some protection is by putting, let's say for Louis Vuitton, LV all over it so that when people see that handbag, they're not just seeing the pockets, and the zippers, and the strap, they're seeing LV all over it. And that can be protected because that's a pattern. That's that's essentially an ornamental feature. It's not functional. The pockets, and the zipper, and the strap, that's all functional. You can't get a design patent on that, but you could get it on that pattern that says LV, and that would help distinguish you in the marketplace. Buckles themselves can be considered ornamental. So there is a function of a buckle, which is to hold the straps of the belt. But the ornamentation on the buckle, that, that's separate. That's basically protectable under design patent and perhaps copyright as well because it's, a, it's sort of a sculpture, if you will. So yeah, buckle designs, any, any type of article of manufacture that has a design on it, that ornamentation can be protected with a design patent. So it's actually quite robust some things that can't be protected is anything that's functional anything that is not embodied in an article of manufacture so a design language cannot be protected with a design patent okay that's more of an idea a specific application of a design language yeah that can be protected we'll talk about that a little more backlighting that basically is not for ornamental effect but helps you see the keypad. In other words, you type on your screen on your laptop when it's dark and it lights up, you really don't get a design patent for that because it's helping you see the keys. But maybe the particular way you've lit it up, some ways the letters appear differently, maybe to some of the lighting effects around it, maybe those are considered ornamental enough that you could get a design patent on it. Here is basically the Apple-Samsung battle, that Apple had a design patent here to this. And, and some of the ways they compare is when you do a design patent, it's the solid lines that matter. So Apple created solid lines around the screen and around sort of the top speaker. But they, they dotted lined the home button here, and they dotted lined the back of the smartphone, and when you dotted line, and I know this is a detail, but when you dotted line something in a design patent, it's not part of the design patent. So when Apple asserted this design patent against Samsung's phone, Samsung's phone only needed to infringe the solid line portions. And you can do that in a design patent. You could have something that has multiple ornamental features and you just focus in or zero in on a few of them. And if any other product that, in this case, a smartphone, contains those features, they infringe. That's why the less you have solid line in a design patent, the broader your protection is. In this case, you'll notice the Samsung phone had a curve in the back at the bottom and didn't maybe look quite the same on the side, but that didn't matter. It still infringed the overall frontal look. And it didn't need the home button because this was dotted lined as well. Also remember that this was in front of a jury. So again, this ordinary observer and substantial similarity. So basically you have lay people looking at these two and saying, yeah, those are substantially similar or they're not. Just to let you know, this happened to be the prior art. So one of the ways Samsung could have attacked the Apple design patent is by saying, hey, this new design of Apple's, you shouldn't even gotten a design patent. Here's the prior art. And it's obvious. Well, is it new? Mm, I would have to say this square region doesn't look particularly new to me. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a viewpoint there. The standard for determining whether or not it's new enough is called the ordinary designer. So now we have the ordinary observer, which is the lay person for deciding infringement, but you have the ordinary designer who basically says that given the prior art, would an ordinary designer kind of easily jump to the conclusion of moving from the prior art to this, okay? And I am not in any ways going to say I'm an ordinary designer. You guys are much better designers than I will probably be ever. So I can't say to whether or not an ordinary designer could move from here to here. In this case, maybe not, because you can't have infringement unless the patent is valid. So anyway, this is just some of the, the ways that you could try to knock this out. And it it obviously didn't work because, you know, the decision was that uh, Samsung infringed. This is another set, uh, an example. This is actually more the GUI-focused example. You had the prior art with the different GUI icons. You had Apple's design patent that also has the GUI icons. And this would not have struck me at the very beginning, but there's a difference between this dark region at the top and this gray region at the bottom. You know, you're all used to it on your phones now but I guess an ordinary designer wouldn't necessarily go from this to this. So they got the design patent, they asserted it against Samsung, and it was again determined to infringe, but here maybe it's a little easier. They both have the gooey icons, and here is this dark, this lighter region at the bottom, and Samsung also has this lighter region. So I would say the jury made a pretty good call on that one. And I'm, I'm amazed at, at how, how how, what is considered ornamental. It doesn't have to be hugely ornamental. It could be something as simple as different color regions on a display. And uh, you could say it also has a functional aspect because it allows you to zero in on some key buttons. But you know, this is one of those areas where Apple could have probably got both a functional patent and, a, and, and obviously got a design patent as well. This is a comparison to the BlackBerry Torch. So we've kind of already known that the Samsung was determined to infringe the Apple patent. But a question is, do you think it infringes the BlackBerry torch? You again apply the test of would would an ordinary observer consider this to be substantially similar? And I, I believe this was not considered to be infringing. And I would sort of see why, because you don't have this light region at the bottom you do have a light reach in here but it doesn't have icons in it it just has some information so maybe an ordinary observer would look at that and say no I don't think those are substantially similar so it doesn't infringe utility patents this is kinda the area that I work this is my normal job basically you get anything functional so now we get away from the ornamentation we get away from the expression we get into sort of what does it do how is it built how is it connected up That's what utility patents protect. And up until recently, we had a first to invent standard, where basically, if you invented it first in the US, and the US was kind of unique in this way, and if you could prove that you invented it first, you got the patent, provided it hadn't been publicly known for too long, about basically a year. You were given a year. But now we've moved to first to file. So basically, that's something to consider, that you need to kind of keep your designs, you need to keep your utility ideas, your functional ideas confidential until you get a filing date. So this is something that sort of I understood from from talking to John a little bit. You all have quite the benefit from being at this school in that you get to keep your intellectual property. Many schools, you, you sign away your rights. So, as I understand, like in MIT or some of these others, Caltech, you're doing research, you're doing design, the school owns it. Here, my understanding is you own it. And basically, under the current system, you need to keep your stuff under control, meaning you don't want to be sharing it and posting it online where everyone can see because you still have a year in the U.S. if you do that, but it's best if you really think you've come up with a super design or a really super new functional idea you really should reach out to an attorney and have a discussion amongst yourself as to whether you're willing to try to get some real protection and if you are keep it confidential until you get that filing date until you've basically sent your application into the patent office and once you do that then you can start talking about it. So that's something to think about because as I understand One of the ways, you know, you guys are all here, you're coming up with some great new ideas. There's a lot of talent in the room and and you should benefit from that. And I know there's a social aspect to collaborating. So for the most part, if you keep it to a small group of your team working on a design, that's probably not a problem, but you don't wanna be going out and putting it on a web page, talking about it at a conference and making it generally known to those interested to the interested public, because then it basically creates a lot of bars. You basically get a grant of a utility patent on, uti- on functional things as if it's new and unobvious. It's the same standard for the design patent, except this one is examined at the patent office. Unlike the design patent where you're basically registering your design and then at litigation they determine whether or not in a courtroom it's new and unobvious. Absolutely, the utility patents, there's this battle between the examiners. They find the art, they say it's not new, we're not going to grant it to you, you have to go through a huge discussion. That's definitely examined pretty close. You get 20 years from filing, so you get a little bit more time, but it's still relatively short, but it is a complete block. If you had somebody else independently invent your functional idea, tough luck. You can exclude them. Remember, that's not true of copyright. Somebody else comes up with your exact story but they never saw yours, you're out of luck. Design patents, utility patents, somebody comes up with your exact same design or exact same functional idea, you're protected. It's a right to exclude. The biggest concern you ever have, I think, with a patent is how it's going to be used. If you just want to get a patent to put a plaque on the wall, that's one use. It's not much of a use. When you get a patent, you ultimately have to ask yourself, who is going to pay to assert it in court? Who is willing to pay the money so that eventually it can be asserted against others and they go to court if necessary? And that can be expensive. One of the ways you get that kind of sense is if the patent covers something that seems to be a great new product idea, because there will definitely be, you know, the business case. So I would say that you just don't necessarily want to come up with something new and unobvious. You want to see that, understand the business context, how it how the market might react. That's not a clear science. I would say that you would talk to people that are familiar with the market, that you know some maybe some key leaders, uh, people that you think are informed. Another way to judge essential novelty is attending conferences that deal with that technology. Many times people, if they are inventing in an area where they're not an expert, they, they to themselves have come up with a great new idea. But those in the field, in that expertise area, they've come up with that answer a long time ago. So you wanna sort of be in the space, be informed of the space you want to invent in is a first step, and for the business case, that's a little bit more unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, if at some point you think it could lead to a decent revenue stream or some licensing opportunities, that would be another reason to pursue it. So again, it's the patents are business tools. They can be resume tools as well, which is not bad, but they're, they're best, at their best, they're business tools. Litigation in a courtroom is very expensive. It's very time consuming. It's very burdensome. First you want to basically, if you had a patent, you want to know and have a sense of its value. You don't want to be taking your patent and coming out with some outlandish request from that person that's infringing, because you'll never settle. And then if you don't settle, you end up going and spending a lot of money at court, and you get less than you were ever expecting. So I think the key thing is, to begin with, try to really get a sense of how valuable your patent is. when you have some decent information to value it, which is an art in itself, then I would say you approach it as a negotiation. You approach the potential infringer and have a discussion. That could be very inexpensive. It just takes your time, it takes a little of their time. It depends on how reasonable the parties are. So I would say the more reasonable you are as to the value of your patent, that would keep your overall costs low and your sense of getting a reasonable return or a reasonable royalty pretty decent. But if you have unrealistic expectations that some patent is gonna make you zillions of dollars where you're just guessing, then costs can be quite high. So I, w- I would just say I would more respond to that, having a proper approach to take is the best route and then it costs what it costs. But you know, I would say at least, you know, Depending on a basic negotiation, might be a couple hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Litigation tends to be, uh, you know, sometimes up into the million range or more. It depends. So I can't say. I can only say probably the least expensive way of protecting your idea would be to, again, approach it in a very business-like, reasonable, not Pollyanna way. And in terms of the costs involved. Many times, the only time you have a lawyer cost is when you finalize the agreement. So I would say when you're having a business discussion with the other party, I wouldn't necessarily say you'd have to involve attorney. You know, you could just talk to the other side and discuss it. Most likely, depending on who they are, they might involve their own legal department because in part they're going to evaluate your, your assertion that the claims actually read on, uh, you know, your claims read on their device. Okay, so that, but that's internal costs. For yourself, if you can read claims, let's say well, in a design patent, a little more straightforward. It's almost like you could put yourself in the realm of an ordinary observer. Utility patent, a little trickier, but once you understand sort of the basic way the claims are written, you could probably be pretty reasonable. So I would say you begin with business discussions and you you try to involve lawyer people only toward the end when you need a final agreement. So it, it could be less is just the thought. Basically, examples, like I said, you could get into design language rules. So before, in a design language, you can't protect that with so much a copyright because that's more of an idea. It's not a design language in general isn't applied to an article of manufacture, so you really can't get a design patent on it. But if you have a series of design rules, if they're new and obvious, you might get a patent to a method of design if you have a particularly u- unique way of approaching a design. So that's, that's an additional benefit of a utility patent. It covers functional things. One thing I thought that was particularly interesting, if you'll notice medical procedures, not until this presentation did I actually research that. I often wondered about that. It turns out, yes, you can get a patent on a medical procedure, but the doctor can use it and there will be no damages. So in other words, you can't say, oh, that doctor used my medical procedure, tough. If on the other hand, you had a commercial business that maybe uses that medical procedure, let's say on a different situation to help develop products that help the doctor, then that is basically infringing and you can get damages. So in other words, a doctor operating on a person, no, you don't get damages, but a company that's doing R&D using your procedure to kind of like help the doctor do their job better, develop better computer you know, sensors, this, that. Yeah, that's infringing. So that's kind of almost a policy statement, but I, I didn't quite know that till now. Exclusions, just to let you know, exclusions are a big area recently in patent law. It's the whole subject matter. There was a recent Supreme Court case called Alice versus CLS Bank, and it was just emphasizing you can't protect abstract ideas, which is a big discussion about what in the world's an abstract idea. Laws of nature, so basically the Pythagorean theorem, you know, uh, Einstein's equation. Also not products of nature, so basically you can't get a patent on, on currently existing DNA. On the other hand, if you tweak the DNA, yeah, you've basically altered it in a way. If it's new and unobvious, you could get that as a patent. So one other thing is business methods and financial instruments tend to be very tricky areas to get patents, just to let you know. But software is not as bad as it seems. You hear about software patents and they're all going away. Well, that's not really true to really good software patents. What it's true to for the most part are computer implementations of an existing practice. It seems to be around 2000 or so, there was this sense if if I computerize something, I can get a patent and people did get patents. So you had bingo, and you put it on a computer, and they got a patent for it. Now those are the kind of ones that are being invalidated. So silly stuff like that. And the reason I say silly is because essentially the attitude is is that just by putting something in a different domain, you take an existing behavior, be it a business practice, a financial practice, a game and now you put it into the domain of a computer instead of in terms of what you're doing on a table is not enough. If you somehow take that game and you make it into a different game, you come up with a brand new financial instrument of some sort or a brand new business method, yeah, you could get a patent on that. But on the other hand, a lot of the patents people were getting were to stuff that had already been done before and they were just putting it on a computer. One of the ways you might wanna understand that further is if in the course of scaling a business process, so in other words, it used to be done by hand on a ledger for about 100 people, now you wanna scale it to a million people. If it's not just a one for one, the computer does the exact same thing that the person did, but you run into some problems, you you wanna find some ways of making it more efficient, those improvements in efficiencies could be patented. So it's not just all financial instruments are not protected, it's the ones that have been there forever, things like that, even though it is sort of a tough area. Trademarks, service marks, just real quick. This does uh, cover simple things. Trademarks, as I was saying before, it's the idea of where in the world did this product or service come from? You know, did you make it or did you make it or, you know, who made this thing? So it's the source of origin of goods or services. So there, anything that has, creates a memory in a, a person can be used as a trademark. Usually the simpler, the better. So shapes, words, sounds, picture of a Coke bottle, logos, jingles, stuff like that. The grant is basically, if it's capable of distinctly indicating the source or origin of goods. And the way you get that as you'll see on the can be here, If it's very arbitrary or fanciful, perhaps suggestive, those are pretty strong marks. So apples for computers? Yeah, I I wouldn't have thought an apple would do much programming. That's pretty fanciful. So that's a good strong mark. If you had bricks for a company that made bricks, that that sounds rather descriptive. Those are the ones that are harder to get, or it could be generic. You know, that, that, that you're basically what? People think that you know, that doesn't really make you distinctive. You know, it's, lots of people can sell bricks. Why would you say that you're the brick person? So the idea is if you have something that is really incongruous, you can probably get that as a trademark. So again, it's suggestive, arbitrary, or fanciful. The term is very important. Basically, the trademark exists forever if you're using it in commerce. So when you have Mickey Mouse as a set of ears as long as Disney continues to use that they have protection forever. They could lose it if they stop using it and that's why sometimes the best form of protection for certain key characters like Minnie Mouse, Mickey Mouse, all some of that stuff, the Coke bottle image is you wanna get a trademark on that and just keep using it. So that's something that is very different because all you're doing is it's almost like a, a domain name. You're just routing that image in people's mind to a particular source or origin so these are some examples a big one is just to say, the harley sound when they tried to copyright the potato potato sound that was considered too functional because the engine made that sound and anybody who made that engine would basically make that sound so that's why harley couldn't get that on the other hand pink owens courting insulation insulation doesn't have to be pink it can be different colors So think pink, Owen Corning's got a trademark for that. So basically, obtaining, just a review, obtaining the IP for copyright, you're getting things that are the author's expression, okay, of an idea. But other people can independently have their own expressions. Ornamental features, that's what's covered by design patents, a lot of what you do. Functional features, utility patents, and sort of something that creates a unique identification of your product or service with a particular source of origin, you can get a trademark on. Infringing, it's copying. Design patent, it's substantial similarity in terms of the ordinary observer. Utility patent, making use you know, selling the functional features and trademark, service mark, likelihood of consumer confusion. I kind of went through and analyzed whether. In general, you could get protection of these different types for different things. One is general design language, specific embodiments of design languages, flower arrangements, fashion items, which are particularly interesting, wearable devices, video game designs, web pages, Mickey Mouse. But I wanna to briefly touch upon just one or two of these. I took a picture of this in, uh, you know, in an airport uh, store and I have a question for you. As you see, it's a watch with a rather long band. The question is, is this purely functional or is there anything ornamental about the length of the band? So how many think there's an ornamental aspect to the length of this band or it's purely functional? Ornamental? Okay, I, I think it's ornamental. And the reason is because to hold a watch on a person's wrist, you only need it to go around once. But the fact that this thing can go around twice, that seems somewhat non-functional, somewhat ornamental. So this is like, we have to be very careful in drawing the line, even though otherwise it's a wristband with holes. You know, Technically, if somebody had a huge wrist, it would be functional, right? So, you know, but that's something that again, you can distinguish. This is a particularly good one. And I, this could be the last thing we talk about. I saw this recently in a magazine And if your first impression of this design for a chair was, gosh, that is completely protectable with a design patent, you would not be alone. I sort of thought of that until I read about how these connections were created. It turns out this was created with a computer program. And the program was set to basically come up with a design that minimized, I think, the weight of this and maximized the strength. Okay, that's very functional. So even though this design looks very ornamental and artistic, it's not. So somebody, if they got a design patent on this, it couldn't be to this matrix, okay? It might be to the height of the back of the chair. That can be varied. It might be to the overall distance between the sitting surface and the bottom, which is kind of examples of this where some of the design aspects is the length of the legs or the shortness of the back. If this pattern here on this chair is purely ornamental and not structural, that pattern could be, you get a design pattern on that. But if you did tweak the computer program so that basically you put in ornamental features, then yeah, there could be something where it looks like a diamond here and that was not ideally the way it should be set up, but it's created these images or artistic aspects, those could be protected. But if some program is essentially functional and it's creating this beautiful design, but it's functionally creating it, that is not protectable by a design patent, even though it could be protected by a utility patent. The other is, yeah, you could get a copyright on this, but it's a nice sculpture, isn't it? And that's one of the things for a copyright. But if somebody ran the same program again and they came up and they didn't look at your design and they just ran the program again and they came up with your exact same picture, they could get a copyright on theirs too, so it's not much protection. So that's part of this. the silliness is, is that some forms of IP protect things better than others. In this case, I would say the strongest forms of protection are functional for creating this structure. Second would be design in terms of the overall constraints on it. So. That's about it, and I'll ask questions. The other thing I was gonna tease you with was an ornament. So can you get a design patent where there, is there an article of manufacture here? Because you get a design patent on ornamental features of an article of manufacture. This seems like a pure ornament to me. The way you might get around that is this is a decoration. So you could just use the, the, say that this is an ornamental feature on a decoration. You could say the article of manufacture is the string. So you have this ornamental thing on the string. But I'm just saying, you'd you'd get a design patent for that. A non-disclosure is usually for a limited time, like a couple years, and it can be tricky because essentially when somebody gives you a non-disclosure, that means they're gonna be showing you confidential information, and that can taint you. So if you're in an area that you want to really come up with some new ideas, I would say be very cautious about interacting and signing a non-disclosure. You have to determine that you really need this information in in order for you to move forward with your design or your idea. Because otherwise, it's kind of proof that they showed you something. And it could end up being used against you. It's about obviously protecting them. So, I would just say, I would not just sign these willy-nilly. I would say that if you really need to collaborate with whoever is giving you this confidential information, yeah, it's probably fair because they want to protect their ideas, you want to protect yours, but you probably want to document your work that you did related to this non-disclosure discussion before you sign it, before you talk to them. So the best way to protect yourself is if you have some functional ideas that relate to this discussion, write them down, put a date on them, put your name on them, maybe have somebody co-sign them, draw some sketches, come up with your designs, do all this stuff, record it somewhere, save it, have somebody duplicate it, then go into the NDA so that at some point the other party can't say, oh, no, I told you that idea. You know, we were talking about designing a new chair. Well, then you could say, yeah, we were, but here, I already had this design before I talked to you, so you can't say that I stole your idea, okay? So I, it's just a, it's a dangerous thing, and, and I would say you'd want to avoid, if you could collaborate without signing NDAs, that would be good, but, yeah, some companies just won't collaborate with you at all unless you do. So the key thing is document your work. I mean, that's a, that's a key first step. When you do things, have a notebook, a lab notebook, draw sketches, You know, keep track of what you're doing, it it matters. Sometimes, many times when you can do a filing, you don't even have to pay the fees immediately. You have like a three month window to pay the fees. So there are some techniques that could be used if you approach somebody that deals in the area that we wanna pursue, to basically get a filing date at very little cost. It might not have the best protection, but it's something. Other than that, many times I've heard they're in such a position that it's hard to negotiate which is not to say don't pursue it another approach just to let you know is sometimes you might not want to approach these entities with your best idea many things are beta tested and you might and that's not necessarily a bad thing you might want to pursue it initially with a discussion that is a pretty good idea that you think might get their attention but save some of your best work for later Okay, so that when you really start getting some funding, you can get the right protection in place. Because many times it's the improvements to your idea that just the improvement makes the product.
1: That was a wealth of information. If anybody's ever hired a lawyer before, this is a lot of great information to help you before you decide what you're going to do with your intellectual property. Because oftentimes as a designer, we're spending all of our time thinking Because oftentimes, as an artist and designer, we're thinking about something that we're making and not thinking about the legal ramifications of it. But remember, as more and more art and design career opportunities are on the rise, employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and, of course, skilled creative professionals. And, of course, at Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. And you can study anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request info about our 40 plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, fashion design, photography, UX design, and more, visit our website at academyart.edu slash creative mind. And do us a big favor before you click off, please hit subscribe in whatever platform you're listening to so you never miss an episode of Creative Mind. Thanks for listening.